this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice podcast, and with me here today is Clyde Ford, a local author, internationally acclaimed. Clyde, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joy. It's a pleasure to be on with you, and I look forward to our conversation today. I do, too. Tell me about your new book and some of the other books that you've written and who you are a little bit to acquaint our readers to the idea. We're here to talk about prisons, jails, justice, public safety, how I change justice, how we do it. So why would I have you on the call today? Well, my last book, the book that came out just about six weeks ago, Uh, was of blood and sweat, Black Lives and the Making of White Power and Wealth. And it's really about all the ways in which um, people of African descent have contributed to the institutions of power and wealth here in America without ever really receiving their fair share of opportunities to secure, utilize, and pass forward that power and wealth. And it's a book which actually starts in pre-colonial times in Africa, looks at how um, African societies contributed to the power and wealth of Europe, and then proceeds on to how a very similar thing happened in the early days here in America, straight through to post-Civil War times. That's where this volume ends. So before that, I've been very fortunate in having had the opportunity to write and publish a number of books. For a previous book I wrote, Think Black, which is the story of my father, who was the first black software engineer in America. Um, The Washington State Library and the Seattle Public Library awarded me the 2021 Washington State Book Award. So I'm very happy to feel as though I am a Northwest author and have had an opportunity to write not only about this area in some of my previous books, but also to be recognized as such um, by the the state, uh, as I said, by Washington State Library. Seattle Public Library. How awesome. I've heard before that the pen is mightier than the sword, and I've had some experience with that. But it's really awesome to hear someone who's lived through life and who has written some incredible material to truly help us through this place in time in history, especially in Whatcom County right now. And the reason I say that is because the reason I've invited you to the show is because I read a piece that you posted in Facebook about the fact that there were suddenly security guards, private security guards guarding the doors of the food co-op and it made you nervous. So could you talk to us a little bit about why it was that you decided to write about that? And maybe before you started, talk about, you know, what does public safety mean to you? Cause I think you've got a completely different perspective than what most people in the press at least use, and certainly police use when they're talking about public safety. So start wherever you want and share. Sure. 
Well, I think the first thing was just walking into the food co-op one day and realizing that the fellow staring at me as I walked in the door was not another shopper, but was actually security. And wow. that was the early days of the co-op posting security guards. They didn't have uniforms on. They didn't have jackets on. But, you know, if you've been around security at all, you know what that's like. You know when somebody's looking at you, not because uh, they're interested in who you are, but they're interested that you're going to do something uh, that they're there to protect from. And that feeling obviously is not a good one because it begins to feel like surveillance. And when did that happen? Oh, I'm going to say this was the beginning of March, uh, maybe end of March, beginning of April, actually. So and, it's this year. It's oh, like yeah, now. this is very new. And, and, it, okay. and it comes up because the food co-op has had some security issues. Uh, they've had some problems with violence uh, against store employees and uh, also, uh, I believe, against uh, customers. And their response to that violence was to hire um, private security, a firm called RSU here in Bellingham. And of course, they and many other businesses have actually hired this firm in order to protect those businesses from what they perceive to be threats. So unfortunately, the co-op and other local businesses, most of them view public safety as the protection of commercial enterprises against the public that might potentially do harm to them or their customers, whether it's shoplifting, whether it's vandalism, or whether it's physical violence. I want to say really clearly, straight off, that no one, or I should put it another way, everyone should feel safe shopping at any business. Everyone should feel safe working at any business here in Whatcom County or any place else for that matter. But my sense was when I saw that security guard, this is not the way you go about public safety. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the, the phrase and, and define it that way. As a person, I'm president of the Restorative Community Coalition, and I've been working on the story of what is public safety for quite a long time. And because the taxpayers in Whatcom County and most places, we pay taxes to the government, to Whatcom County, to the various municipalities and organizations in the community that, that are entitled to collect taxes. We pay taxes because we want to promote and support government services that provide for the public safety. Like it's for us, the human being safety. That's sort of our, our pre-assumption, if you will, when we talk about public safety. And then when I started working on the jail and justice system issues, it was interesting how suddenly the public safety definition, as I thought of it, became the public safety services of a public safety division of Whatcom County that was build, pub, building public safety buildings to incarcerate people. Right. And that is, and that is unfortunately the logical outcome of a system of public safety that quite frankly goes back to the 12th and 13th century in England. Yep. And which we really haven't thought through or many people haven't thought through about how there were better ways 
to do public safety. And although I know we're not here to talk about my book of blood and sweat, in that book, I really was able to trace back this history of policing. And I'm using policing here in its most expansive sense of the word. That is patrolling some defined barrier where those outside of the barrier, we are there to either apprehend or arrest in some way. And putting people in jail is a very extreme form of apprehending and arresting them. And to, we believe then that if we do that, we will keep those people behind this blue wall, if you will, uh, safe. You know, that's such an old idea. It goes straight back to 1285 in England and an edict called the, 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 the Statue of Westminster, which basically was the then government saying to all of these hamlets throughout the English countryside, you must protect yourself against anyone who is not living within your village and you must assume they are guilty and you have the right and the obligation to throw them in jail overnight on the presumption of guilt. And then in the morning, you can figure out whether they actually were there to do something. You know, it is such an old antiquated, really unfounded idea about public safety. And yet it is the go-to idea that places even like the community food co-op first went to when they had a problem. And that's why I wrote the article, uh, Joy, is because it really felt to me like it is time, it's high time that we had a better understanding, first of public safety and what it means, and then secondly of what do you do when you have problems? <laughs> it seems to me that's a good idea, especially in the 21st century where, where guns and gun violence is becoming such a big issue, where we've had police violence, we've had public violence, we had, you know, on January 28th of 2021, we had an, an, a police action down at our city hall where four entirely different police agencies converged on downtown Bellingham, did a, a police line and brought in snipers and military weapons and, you know, military style weapons. And they were supposedly responding to a homeless threat. There was going to be a homeless protest. But my experience, I went down there and what I witnessed was that the homeless were actually being almost scapegoated as part of a a totally different thing. And the police behavior, the domination of the police was, I mean, I watched the incredible terror that showed up in people's faces when they realized that their friends, the very people who had been their protectors in our community for decades. I mean, we haven't had a police experience like that in the whole time I've lived here. And I moved here back in the seventies. And to actually experience it where public safety workers and the police and, you know, one of the council members was down on the streets and, and there were nonprofit leaders and there were people trying to help the homeless get moved because the police came in a day earlier than they'd said they would. It was a homeless protest, but it became like this whole different experience, almost like civic theater. And it was really distressing to me at the time. It took me what, almost two weeks to write about it. Um, but we're in that kind of a situation here in Bellingham now where 
We've got the police. Some of the police are, are, you know, doing what it, what I see as bullying or hazing of the homeless to get them out of town. And the homeless are now being blamed for all this crime rate. And now the police, the police and the city and the County has passed taxes to deal with some of this stuff just arbitrarily. And now we've escalated to the point where we have security guards. So it disturbs me too. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you up here. What have you heard from people from your experience? Have you talked to the food co-op? What's going on in your world as to, you know, what's happening that all this is happening? Yeah. So I did, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer that you don't just say there's a problem. You try to get to the root of it. And maybe you talk to the people who have, are making decisions about why they are making those decisions. Sure. So I did two things. Uh, one of the things I did was to reach out to the food co-op, to their management, to their general manager, ask, actually, and ask if we could schedule a call, which we did. And the second thing I did was to contact other food co-ops from Ashland to Skagit Valley uh, to see what they were doing. Sure. And, and I have to say that I was very saddened by the response of the food co-op. I received an email which said, my gosh, you're the first person to bring up there's a problem with security. And the reason I was saddened by that response is about three weeks later, uh, a young woman also wrote to the food co-op uh, about uh, security because she was concerned as well too. And she got back an email which said, my gosh, you're the first person to ever bring up any issues that uh, uh, co-op members had with security. So wow. the first thing that was just so obvious is a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability, and quite frankly, outright not telling the truth to uh, co-op members who were writing, expressing their concerns. So that really, I felt, was, was pretty sad. I don't think that needs to take place. Again, as I said, I think there are a lot better ways to go about establishing security. What I did hear, again, I do not know if this is true, is that um, these security personnel were temporary solutions. Uh, my, I do have some experience in the uh, public safety national security field, which we can talk about in a moment. But I, one thing that I do know from my experience there is that it's rarely the case that uh, public safety uh, implementations are temporary. Uh, right. More than anything, they tend to snowball. So if you've got a guard, your solution is very rarely to pull the guard away. Your solution is to double down on whatever uh, situation you've gotten yourself into. And I was hoping uh, that we might, meaning we, the members of the co-op, might do something which would convince the co-op to do an about face before it was too late and they saw themselves caught up in this never-ending cycle of let's use the threat of violence in order to protect against violence and i have to say that is just not a solution i don't believe it's a solution and nor do the people who are most at risk like the people who work in the co-op believe it is a solution either not only did I talk to co-op management, but I talked to co-op employees and I asked them, look, I hear that you have some problems. How do you feel with uh, in pre-security? And wow, I really got an airful when I heard back from them, you know, we actually feel less safe because our concern is, look, if somebody wants to come and do us harm, 
and they see that there's a security guard posted at the door, they're simply going to come back with a bigger weapon. And that is simply going to escalate the whole cycle. I couldn't have agreed with them more. And I also felt, as did they, there's got to be a better solution. And there really is. There's no question about it. There is a better solution. So one of the things, before we go to solutions, <laughs> typically it's good to talk about the problems a little bit more. Um, did it come up and were you aware that a year or two ago they had a big meeting with a bunch of the co-op members and a bunch of the board members over racism and classism and, and the challenges of hiring and employment at the food co-op? Oh, yeah. Not only would I, was I aware of that meeting, but Joy, you know, I've been around Whatcom County for almost 35 years. Look, um, I've had the experience of being in the co-op when it was on State Street and having an individual uh, walk around the co-op and, you know, whisper racial epithets in my ear, whisper homophobic epith epithets in the ears of our LGBTQ uh, members. And now we're talking about, again, the early 90s, uh, some of us had to organize to get the food co-op to ban this particular individual from the store. And the interesting thing that I found, unfortunately, was that just about a year ago, I walked into the Northside Co-op and there he was again. And I had to again call the co-op uh, management and say, look, uh, you guys were supposed to be taking care of this. And yet now I find that I still have to walk around Northside Co-op and be concerned about my own physical safety in the store. So, you know, uh, it, it, it's just another indication of why the approach that unfortunately the co-op has taken is not going to solve the issues that they really want to solve and they actually need to solve. There's better ways to do this and it ain't the way that they've gone about it. So let me ask you a question, because that's that's very interesting to me. What have you seen from the standpoint of growth with all the conversations that, I mean, we're perceived to be a pretty progressive community, and yet we've also got these really strong extremist views in the county. It's in North County, South County, you know, there's all these political conflicts and there's ideological conflicts and all these things. And yet, as a whole, people in Whatcom County tend to like to pretend that, or at least say, that we're progressive. Have you actually seen that progressiveness increase over the years? And, and not necessarily progressiveness, but have you seen safety at all up until just recently? Have you seen it in improving or going backwards over the last decades that you've lived here? Because I yeah, do. I I think you have to separate out the issues of political progressiveness and the implementation of public safety. Uh, unfortunately, they're related and sometimes they're not related in the way that you might think. I remember, in fact, I quoted her in my book. I believe her name was Betsy Hodges or Betty Hodges, who was the former mayor of Minneapolis, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times shortly after George Floyd's killing in which she said, and this was, I thought, so profound. She said, look, when I was mayor, I actually saw that the biggest problem in our community with policing was the progressives who wanted us to be more proactive in hiring more police and getting out there with more police 
to protect their property from whom they consider to be those outsiders or the others in society. So, you know, sometimes it's not just the label of progressive that is the important thing. It's about what actions are actually being taken. Now, having said that, look, Whatcom County is certainly has a number of incredibly well-intentioned, well-meaning people who are engaged in great kinds of civic activities. Joy, you know you're part of that community of people who are trying to make a difference. So there's no question that there's a cadre of people who exist like that here in this community. And I really love living here in this community because of that. But I also have to contrast that with my experience. I never was subject or never had the experience of physical proximity close to a cross burning. I came from back east. I didn't have that until I moved here to Whatcom County. When I first moved to Whatcom County 35 years ago, I lived out in the county on the Hemi Road between the Hannigan and the Guide. And in 1994, there was a cross burning about a mile down the road from me. Mm -hmm. It was at a migrant labor's camp and the idiots who burned the cross didn't really get that when you burn a cross in a heavily Catholic place, that most of the folks, particularly if they don't speak English, uh, don't recognize that as a hate sign, but actually recognize it as a, as a sign of the Virgin Mother or as a, a deeply spiritual sign. And I do remember, I wasn't physically present, but I do remember that one of the things that needed to take place was for, um, and I believe it was Larry Estrada, who was uh, now at Western Washington University, to actually go in and translate for most of these Hispanic laborers that this was a sign of hate. It wasn't a sign to run to and kneel down in front of, as many of them did. Great thing about that incident is, look, out of that came Whatcom Human Rights Task Force, which has been a really strong force in supporting uh, human rights here in the county and has done wonderful work over the years. Uh, My friend at the university, Damani Johnson, really spearheading that many years ago and establishing that as a very important organization. So again, you know, this county, uh, somewhat like the country, it certainly has its divisions, but what I think is unique about Whatcom County often is that there are groups that can bounce back from that divisiveness to create opportunities for change in a positive way. And that is really why I felt so strongly and still do about the co-op. The co-op is one of those institutions which we should look to for really dynamic, innovative solutions to public safety that are not just the same kind of knee-jerk solutions that have over the years proven time and time again, they do not work. And that is why I thought there's gotta be a better way. When I called other co-ops, when I listened to what some other businesses were doing, I began to discover maybe I'm not that far off. There are better ways that people are experimenting, looking at ways to generate, create, maintain, support, and grow public safety where the public is in the public safety. And it's not just public safety, which separates the public from those that uh, police are trying to keep safe. And again, I'm using the word police in its largest sense of the word, not just the men and women in uniforms and black and white cars, but anybody who's set up to guard one group of people from another group of people. So this is really fascinating because already I've heard a couple of different um, issues show up. And one of them is how do we 
guard people who are vulnerable or businesses who feel vulnerable or police who feel vulnerable or the people in emergency conditions feeling vulnerable. And, and there's a, we actually, I believe we should start having a conversation about what is vulnerability? What is appropriate defensiveness? What is logical defense? What is aggressive defense that actually can, can instant instantly, almost instantly turn predatory. I mean, it's interesting how the police industry and law enforcement as an industry is, is set up to actually hunt down and catch bad guys. Right? That's part of the story of police. And we've got the good guy, the good cop, bad cop story. And we've got you know, the black and white and the masculine and feminine, all these divisions. But what I have found interested in my tracking of what's going on here is that there's a third party. So there's almost like a, a good guy, bad guy, or a, per, or a perpetrator victim, or in the trauma bonding world, there's the, the predator and then the person who's preyed upon who then falls in love with the predator, which crosses over into this you know, Stockholm syndrome and complex post-traumatic stress disorder conditions. All of those are more of emotional and psychological words. But it's interesting that sitting above and outside of that are those people who live above the law, pay for the law, hire the law, work with the law. And those guys are almost separate from, and I'm finding that really fascinating as I've been studying, you know, the civic war issues of you know, police running this commercial game to get funding for more and more police, more and more sheriff's units, or more and more jails or more and more prisons. And yet it's contraindicated economically to everybody in the middle or lower or even the undercast. So it's like we've got these multi-layered conflicts that we almost have double speak going on and no one knows who's talking to who. Yeah, and I think it's kept that way in order to promote the kinds of uh, proliferation of weaponry, the proliferation of, look, King said it, Martin Luther King Jr. said it in 1967, April 4th, uh, Riverside Church, New York, that we needed to get rid of the triple evils of militarism, and policing is just an extension of militarism, racism, and materialism. And if you put those together, that's really the kinds of things that we're faced with in this world. Right now, it's why we see uh, gun violence at the extreme levels it is, and nothing being done even when our children are being killed. I mean, it's sad. And, uh, and anybody who says that this is the price of freedom, as many people do, they, are just, they know nothing about the history of this country, the history of the Second Amendment, although they tout it as though it is some uh, God-given right to kill other people and to own weapons to do that. Not where it came from historically, it's not what it meant, and yet it is what is touted as the basis of so much of this. Look, why is it that now, as opposed to 10 years ago, there's you know, basically the police departments are dumping grounds for the weapons that aren't used in all of the war zones. And the police come into communities now with weapons that are just outrageous. We're the only country in the world that does it at this level and still doesn't see solutions. You know, somebody, 
what did they say about the definition of insanity is when you <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again and, and you don't get any different results? Well, oh, it's yeah. even beyond that. We do more and more of the same thing, not the same thing. We do more and more and more, more guns, more guns into the community, more guns into people's hand, more militarized weapons into the police. And the violence just gets worse and worse and worse. Somebody's got to say it's time to stop. Um, and unfortunately, because the very folks who uh, create the weapons, who put them out in the hands of people, also line the pockets of those in power, uh, we don't see the kinds of solutions uh, that we really need as a society. And yet, even in those spaces, there are businesses. And right here in Whatcom County, uh, right here in Washington, Northwest Washington, there are businesses that are saying, there's got to be a better way. We're going to make a difference. I know we can do this. Um, and that's what I think is really important for those of us looking for solutions is to hold up what some of those possibilities are. Look, you could do it this way. You could do it that way. And I spoke to the co-op about this. And the funny thing is, this was, I find really sad, Joy. The co-op knows some of this. Manage, co-op management yes. knows that there are better solutions. And yet, uh, I don't see those being implemented. So what's interesting about that, because I've been standing up in opposition to building bigger jails for the last 13 years. I started working with the Restorative Community Coalition in 2010, and I'm a businesswoman. I had no prior real interest in talking about police work or security. I, I made a decision way back in the 70s. I worked in Olympia in the legislature during the after Nixon years. And I watched a lot of the polarity happen in, in the Republican Democratic political war game. And I just went, you know what? I want nothing to do with politics. I'm out of here. Then I went into police work and worked up at campus security. And I started doing that. And I realized that living at the end of the, the gun as a campus security officer, I had multiple times that I had to break up relationships and yet the problem wasn't arresting and taking people away. The problem started beforehand with emotional issues. And I finally went, you know what? We need to get at the leadership end of this problem, not be at the end that's picking up people and locking them in jail. Because at that point, the problem's too far gone. So I decided to get out of police work and I went into nonprofit. And then I, I found some challenges there and ended, I ended up in business. And so in 2010... The reason I got involved in all this social justice stuff and I got involved looking at social and economic dysfunction was because I was looking at the fact that our county was trying to push, push this massive jail into existence here. And they were using a spec sheet or a what I would call a prospectus in the real estate business industry that was basically selling the jail industry as a good real estate deal for the county government. And so for 10 years, I've been diagramming that. And sure. just, yeah, and that's actually a big problem. And then we use, it's like we use racism and sexism and all these isms to create the divide so that the people who are trying to pass taxes to bring in more government domination, if you will, it's like they use that as the triggers to, to get the middle, middle people, the middle class and all of the people who are hurt to fight with each other so they can dominate and push it through anyway. 
Yeah, well, that model, that model where jails are used as uh, not only good real estate deals, but economic, uh, economic engines of growth for communities, you know, that's, that's a model, unfortunately, that we've just seen played over and over and over again in this country. Look at what goes on with the private uh, prison systems and, yeah. and immigration, and you'll see that. Uh, one of the things that was really very sad to see at the end of the Obama administration, you might even remember, uh, Department of Justice saying that it was no longer going to use private prisons. Yeah. The moment that uh, Trump came into office, that was one of the first things he reestablished. The private prison industry boomed. We saw all of the problems from, you know, from rape to lack of access to health care that went on in the private prisons, many of them uh, with immigrants. And I have not seen anything, perhaps I'm wrong, and I just haven't uh, watched the news as closely as I should have, but I haven't seen the Biden administration turn that around and say, we're, not, we're no longer going to use private prisons. I've heard some things about sunset laws in the sense of, out of after a certain point in time, we, should, we won't use them. My feeling is, you know, I'm very much an ab a modern day abolitionist. I feel that most of the prisons out there should be closed because they too are not creating the kind of public safety uh, that we want in this country. And if we're going to have a model for prisons, then we ought to look at some of the successful models for prisons around the world. I'm thinking of a couple of Scandinavian countries where the models for prisons are really, really, really different. And boy, they do get results, but it's not just a one-stop, one-issue situation. It's not, prisons are important. There's no question about it. But as you mentioned also, Joy, so is mental health. There's a lot of factors that go into how do you create public safety. And I also believe there are things you can do as a community to make sure that nobody is physically accosted, no violence is exacted on people. There are things that can be done still without resorting to the old idea of policing and separating out us from them. But I think it's really important that businesses and institutions like the co-op don't simply reach for a tried and untested, really, and unfounded solutions which separate out us from them where you've got some type of authority, whether it's the police or uh, ununiformed uh, security guards separating, standing guard between who's them, and often it's the them that are going to do us harm, and the us, which is anybody hunkered down behind those lines, whether those lines are drawn by men and women in uniforms, or whether they're drawn by men and women who just have a jacket on that says security in the back. Uh, there are better solutions. I know there are better solutions. I've actually seen better solutions implemented. And I've even heard about um, places who are trying to really implement some innovative solutions for that. Well, it's interesting. Um, I'd like, I'm going to invite you back to this call on another, on another episode, if you'd be willing to do that, because I think a lot of things just came up here that would be really useful for our community to talk about. And I think this is a great place to have these conversations. And one of them is the concept, and I don't want to talk about this very, very long, but the idea when, when Martin Luther King said, militarism, racism, and materialism, 
I'd like to almost upgrade that today to, to make it 21st century. We're talking about policism, which is a, a, a community conversation around militarism and then dualism or extremism or polarism as a upgraded conversation around it and materialism as opposed to consumerism, because these are different varieties of the same conversation, just more, uh, because depending on whether you're in the inner city or you're in a, in a farm community or you're in Whatcom County, which has a lot of different diversity in it, but a lot of it is some sort of homogenized, I suppose. So being able to be a little bit more accurate in the problem, which is we think we have to fight against fear and we have to fight against domination, when in fact, one of the most progressive or useful, I don't like the word progressive because that's politicized. I mean, one of the most proactive things to be talking about is how do we embrace diversity how do we embrace differences, learn from the cultural differences and learn from our beliefs? Like I had no idea when the cross was burned out in the county that some people who are of a particular religion thought it could have been a sign of goodness as opposed to hate. I mean, that's fascinating to me. I did not know that. Right. So, so here's the question. Why don't we talk, maybe we have to change the concept of the word public safety because it's so misused and there's so much double speak and innuendo. What if we talked about community safety? Yeah, you know, I think language is always an important part of that discussion, but unfortunately, I don't think in this case, just changing the language is going to change the behavior of um, those who are charged with helping to keep us safe. So what is a visionary? Okay, so let me challenge you to this. I'm not saying that that's the only word that's gonna help us change it. I'm not, I mean, I got that this is, I've tried to fight with language, but I'm also saying that how do we create a visionary phrase that says we're gonna try as a community to go here Maybe it's maybe it's community vitality or public vitality or wellness or community resilience. Yes. uh, Something of that nature. Yeah, I think there are ways to have good language. But, you know, I can't say that I want to let go of the idea of public safety. I just think there should be more public in the safety. (laughs) (laughs) And unfortunately, that's not the way it's architected uh, these days. Look. I worked in for a number of years, almost though, I don't know, almost a decade, I worked in public safety and national security. And in particular, I went all around the world. I was in probably almost 30 countries, uh, helping them deal with various issues regarding public safety and national security. And I'm, t- I'm gonna tell you a story which illustrates for me the importance of the public in public safety. So I was in South Africa, and I was there to talk with SAPS, S-A-P-S, the South African Police Service. And in the South African Police Service, they don't have police chiefs, they have generals. And so I had a meeting with the general and I was gonna talk to him about security and technology and some of the latest G-Wiz technology things that uh, he could use. 
And I, again, you know, I set up this meeting, I had my PowerPoint ready, and I thought I was really going to be there to present so much. And so this, this fellow walks in the room, and I'm not that tall, but he was even shorter than me. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, this is going to be a great opportunity again for me to present what I need, want to present. I was there at the behest of Microsoft to do this presentation. Well, exactly the opposite happened. I learned more about public safety from that meeting than I ever was able to deliver to this individual. And here's what I learned, Joy. This fellow came in and said to me, look, I have a division of SAPS, South African Police Service, which is so big, and I can't remember the exact acreage that he described, that there's no way I can cover it with only six patrol cars that I was given. Six patrol cars, this huge area. And so he said, I couldn't figure out what to do. But mm -hmm. crime was increasing, violence was increasing, and I didn't know what to do. So I thought to myself, what do these really poor people, and they're very poor people in some of these villages uh, around in the countryside, what do they have? And then he, he said to himself, you know what they have? They have cell phones. And so he said to him, to said to me, the first thing I did was I gave everyone my telephone number. And I said to them, if you have a problem, call me. Wow. And they did. People called me and I said, well, okay, I'll dispatch a car here or dispatch some help here. And then he said to himself and to me, he said, you know, I thought a little more and I said, that's crazy. I'm going to give them the cell phone numbers of the actual six or 12 um, police officers who are in those cars. Yeah. And now if you have a problem, you're going to have the name of a person and a telephone number, and you can pick up the phone and call them. And then, and this was incredible. I just thought this was so brilliant. <laughs> he said, not only did I do that, but I advertised wherever I could that we had a population of people who had direct access to the folks who were supposed to serve and protect them, and they knew to give them a call if they even suspected there was a problem. Then he told me, the crime rate in our area plummeted. And the reason it plummeted was two reasons. One, we had a rapid response force like no other because it was the community recognizing the problems and calling for solutions. And then he said, the other reason it plummeted is that the folks who were going to do harm thought to themselves, wow, this is a population of people as pretty well connected. They are probably not the best prey. So <laughs> I learned from this fellow what it means to bring the public into public safety. He actually devolved the police. I mean, the police are generally thought of as this top-down hierarchy where somebody at the top makes decisions that filter down to what they're doing in the streets. And this fellow actually turned it on its head and said, that's not how we do community policing. It's not how we do public safety. It starts with the people and it filters up to us. That to me, now, obviously, you can't use the same solution they used in you know, South Africa, um, uh, remote areas here in Bellingham, but the ideas you can use and the ideas were you start with the community and you filter back the other way. That's what I wanted the co-op to do, and I still think the co-op should do. 
What are the challenges in the community? What is the community saying about the solution to those challenges? And that's where you start with the ideas around public safety. You don't start by trying to separate out the community, separate out the public from what you're trying to do in terms of keeping people safe. That's why I say we don't have enough public in public safety. And that general in South Africa police service really showed me what it means to bring the public into that, not just the discussion, but the implementation of public safety. So with that, we're about at the end of this conference call and I love that closing. And I would invite you to participate with the Restorative Community Coalition as we start working on the next iteration of the Stop Punishing Taxpayers, Start Rebuilding Community booklet that I was one of the co-authors of in 2015. It was a taxpayer's report talking about how do we build community safety basically from the bottoms up. And we've been resisted a lot by the public safety system in Whatcom County over the last few years. But nonetheless, it's the only way that I know of after working with all these people who are in the system, coming out of the system, out of the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system, and to help them get their feet back up because we need the community to help people re-enter. We need the community to help the teenagers who are in trouble. We need the community to help family members who end up in these emergency situations. And we have to downsize the problem. And the only way I know of authentically is to get grandmothers and elders and parents in the community involved coming up and building like little tiny safety nets, little pods in communities. We've got a vision for some, for restore life centers and we could build these anywhere, you know? So people are networked and know each other. Cause it's when you got people in distress and they're worried, they want to have somebody to call and they want to know that when they call them, there's something that's actually going to help them. Sure. Well, you know, Joy, there's that phrase that uh, actually comes from an African proverb that Marion Wright Edelman used, that Hillary Clinton used for one of her books in which she said it takes a village to raise a child. It also takes a village to keep a village safe. And that's what you're saying. And that's the exact kind of strategies that we need to have solutions built around. You can't keep a village safe by simply putting a couple of people in uniforms or with the word security on their jackets. That is not the solution to keeping a village safe. You gotta do it as you suggested from the bottom up, integrating all of the various elements in that community and making sure that the kinds of help that people get are the kinds of help that people need. Yeah, I think that with that, we can we can pretty much wrap this call up because I think that that's what we're dealing with, the tiny home community, the two of them that are Unity Village and the, the Homes Now projects. Yeah. He works from an inside out level and he uses the people who live in those villages to help create the culture of the village. And, he, and it's been amazing to watch the 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 expansion of the people who live there and the the pride that those people have when they're living in a community where they have responsibilities, they, they are networking, building relationships together. We can do this in our neighborhoods. So I'm going to take it to another level. We need villages raising villages in communities across the county. 
<laughs> right? Yeah, we've got to start someplace. <laughs> and um, I think you start, whether it's in a small, like some of the tiny home communities who are themselves little villages, or whether it's a larger sense of, you know, Bellingham itself as a village. Yeah. So uh, what a pleasure to have you on the call. I really appreciate it, Clyde. I would love to welcome you back fairly soon. And maybe we can do a series of different kinds of calls to help us move this forward. If you have the time, it would be such an honor to host you on another call soon. Well, I look forward to doing that, Joy. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you, audience, for listening in. It's a great day in Whatcom County when we can have conversations like this. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you to our donors whose contributions help our clients directly. You can see the sponsors list and the names of donors and members who are publicly recognized on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. All contributions are appreciated. You can also subscribe to our newsletter, volunteer, donate monthly, or leave a legacy gift by clicking on the donate button. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.